Welcome to Zero to CEO, where seasoned entrepreneurs will teach you how to succeed. I'm your host, Jason Sherman. In today's episode of Zero to CEO, I have with me uranium industry expert, John Cash. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Jason. It's good to be with you. And uh, this is an interesting episode for me, uh, considering uh, that I am not a uranium expert, but I've seen it in a lot of movies, especially with like uh, James Bond trying to stop the, the bomb from going off or whatnot. So uh, we're going to have some fun with this one. Uh, the topic is the ongoing uranium bull market. Now, there's geopolitical volatility going on there. For people that don't know much about what's going on behind the scenes, which is 99% of us, hello, uh, tell us why we need to know about the uranium bull market and, you know, there's this geopolitical volatility. Tell us, like, what the layman would want to know about it. Yeah, so uh, maybe it's best to start by talking about supply and demand. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that the U.S., we are the largest producer of nuclear power in the world. Uh, no one else uh, has approached us yet. Uh, China will ultimately overtake us in that regard. But right now we are the largest in the world. Wow. About 20% of the power in the U.S. is produced from clean nuclear power. Uh, about 50% of our carbon-free electric in the U.S. is nuclear generated. Uh, so it's a major component of our energy uh, production here in the U.S. And so we consume about 50 million pounds of uranium in the U.S. each year. Wow, that's a Globally, lot. Globally, <laughs> about 180 million pounds. So you can see you have 50 million out of 180 that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty good chunk. It's like almost a third. Yeah, about a third. And we've been in that position for a very, very long time. Uh, but the, the challenge is, is the supply of uranium has been dwindling for a long time. It uh, really started uh, many years ago in the U.S., uh, back in the 80s. Uh, there were actors around the world, especially state-owned enterprises out of Russia, that really started to grab market share. And it was very difficult for U.S. production miners and Western world miners to really keep up with Russia, uh, that supply. And then in the 90s, uh, other state-owned enterprises really began to produce, especially uh, Kazakhstan coming into the 2000s. Again, state-owned. Those were not private companies. And they really took a large percentage of the market share when you, when you say that, you mean that the governments were uh, opening more mines or they were purchasing yeah. uranium from companies? They, or? they were opening mines in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan at okay. a very rapid pace, very large mines. How did they know uh, they even had uranium there in the first place? Well, the Russians, uh, when they were part of the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, the Russians did a lot of exploration. Of oh. course, they wanted the uranium for weapons, right? Uh, but they did all of that exploration. So ultimately, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, they still had all of that data, those mm. records. They knew where to go to find that uranium. Got it. So that was a lucrative thing for them as well. Absolutely. So they were able to uh, capitalize on that uh, research that had been done for many years by the uh, Soviets and uh, build out mines and very cost-effective mines. You know, when you've got the government backing, uh, there's limited permitting, limited regulatory right. and safety oversight. Uh, essentially, you go out and do what you want to do. And when you're done, you just leave. You don't really do much cleanup. You wow. just pull up stakes and go. Just, and so, uh, leave you know, a mess. 
They had the mandate to go and produce, create jobs. I mean, I will hand them that. Uh, their mandate was to go and create jobs, and they did. Uh, but they really flooded the market. So Kazakhstan, they are the big mining comp- uh, country in the world. They produce a very large percentage of that 180 million pounds uh, a year. But they don't do much processing there. Really, they send that material then on to Russia. Russia doesn't do much mining. They do the processing Processing. of the material. So in the news lately, you hear a lot about conversion and enrichment, how Iran is doing a lot of enrichment. That's taking fairly inert mined product and turning it into something that can be used either for weapons or for carbon-free electric generation, uh, depending on the the country and, and what they're doing. And is that what a lot of countries are doing now? They're trying to convert to nuclear power, even though, I mean, we've seen it in the news millions of times, nuclear power and the facilities that might have had accidents. So uh, even though it's kind of risky, I guess, in a way, are they still ramping up production on those facilities? Yeah. So when you look at the global conversion and enrichment, Russia has a, you know, about roughly a third, maybe as much as 40 percent of capacity globally. And there are a lot of countries around the world that don't want to buy from Russia for obvious reasons. They don't want to be beholden to Russia. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for alternate Western supply, but there really is no alternate Western supply. Ugh. Russia has really captured the market. And there, there's a lot of talk about putting sanctions on Russia and cutting off their supply of uh, nuclear material. But the problem is, if that gets cut off, where does the world go? And people get left in the dark, cold and shivering, right. and no one wants that to happen. So we, uh, the Western world continues to get uh, Russian processed material. What are the national security implications of this? Because, you know, we're in the middle of a Ukrainian-Russian war, yeah. and you're saying, well, we can't cut off their supply, but they're also not the best place to have such a large amount. And it sounds like a catch-22. So, like, what, what do you do in this case? Yeah, it really is a problem in my company. And uh, we began calling out this issue back in 2018 uh, before we had insight into what was going to happen with Ukraine. And we said, look, this has gotten way too far out of balance. Uh, We need to be buying more Western pounds. We need to be producing more in the U.S. Uh, Unfortunately, here in the U.S., we've allowed our mining, our conversion and our enrichment to really dwindle down to next to nothing. Why is that? Uh, it's not economic. We couldn't compete with Kazakhstan and Russia. Those so we, we were we were importing from them. Absolutely. Oh, uh, so you're saying the the production and the conversion, and you know, basically making it into uranium that's uh, usable, was too expensive here in the in the U.S. Right. Yeah. Really. We, our U.S. industries couldn't compete with the government of Russia. I mean, you got to think of it this way: Russia, in particular, the same processing line that is producing nuclear weapons for the government is the exact same line that they're using to do conversion and enrichment. Uh, so so they've got that added benefit stuff. of being able to do that. Here in the U.S., our industries don't have that government support. Right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm not commenting on that. <laughs> I'm just saying they don't have that support from the government. So when they try to compete with Russia uh, in that military complex, they couldn't do it. I'm surprised the government didn't step up Step up for this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised because this seems like a national security risk. Um, and also, I know Biden signed the Green Movement National Cares Act, I believe. There's lots of green jobs, you know, solar, windmills, um, doing so many things, right? So wouldn't that be part of the incentives yeah. to 
Yeah, it really is. And and as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, President Biden and Congress, they passed a bill that provides a lot of support to the energy providers, you know, the nuclear power plants to keep them up and running. But where we need help now really is on the front end with mining, conversion and enrichment, because in mining, we mine almost no uranium in the U.S. anymore. Conversion, we only have one processing plant in the U.S. that does conversion, and it shut down in 2017. Oh, great. We're trying to get it back up and running. It's uh, owned by a company called Converdine. And as far as domestic enrichment, we have none. And I, I want to be careful to define domestic enrichment. Because of non-proliferation treaties, any uranium we use for defense, it has to be processed using domestic technology by a domestic company right now we only have one enrichment plant in the u.s and it's using foreign technology and it's owned by foreign uh, countries as well so we can't even use that enrichment for our nuclear navy so right now we have allowed our defense to dwindle to a non-existent in the u.s so that really needs a lot of government support right now and I, i there's bipartisan support Uh, But we need to move beyond that bipartisan discussion and agreement. We need to move toward legislation to support our nuclear industry here in the U.S. And we're looking for that help from the Biden administration, Democrats and Republicans. And the the tie on to that of additional benefit is the green energy that it produces. And uh, we can really make a big dent in carbon emissions by moving more and more toward nuclear. It's baseload. It's reliable. When the sun goes down at night, it keeps going. When the wind stops blowing, it keeps going. And uh, our nuclear industry here in the U.S. has an exceptional safety record. And uh, we, we like to call that out. So, but yeah, we've allowed ourselves as a nation to really uh, take a seat behind Russia and increasingly China in that regard. It's not where we want to be. So where... <laughs> Where's the good news, man? Uh, you, just, you just listed off a whole yeah. bunch of bad news, and I'm sitting here thinking so, to myself, wait a minute, I had no idea this is happening, and now this does not sound good at all. No, uh, no the, the this good sounds news, pretty bad. The good news is the world really is beginning to recognize that we've got to move toward nuclear if we want to meet our carbon-free objectives, and that is beginning to drive fuel prices higher, which is good because then that incentivizes new mining uh conversion and enrichment and that's beginning to happen we're being to, to bring to fuel that. prices down because of less demand well no bring demand up because more reactors will be built so germany for example they're keeping their reactors online they're one of the most anti-nuclear uh, countries in the world but a few weeks ago they said hey we've got to keep our reactors online uh we can't rely on the russians for natural gas through the winter so we have to keep our reactors online So many countries around the world, Turkey, Finland, the U.S., uh, South Korea, Japan, England, France, are all looking at building out new reactors going forward because they don't want to be reliant on Russian Uh, supplies. They want to be independent. Smart. And and also because it's carbon free. So there's a big move afoot to go nuclear globally. Why is it carbon free? I mean, uh, what's the environmental footprint and what about the, is the radiation issues or anything like that? What about the costs? Like how, you know, how do we, how do we justify all of this? Yeah, there's a lot in there. So when nuclear fuel is burned, it does not produce any CO2 or particulate emissions. Hmm. It's 100% contained. Uh, 
the amount of waste that's generated from a nuclear power plant is incredibly small. If you took all of the energy needs that you have for your lifetime, every bit of electricity uh, that you need for your lifetime, and you burned used a, a nuclear power to generate all of that, the amount of waste that you would generate for yourself would fit into a 12-ounce can of soda. Whoa. That's it. That's crazy. And, and it can all... It for your whole lifetime, 80, 80 years worth of, yep. of, of waste. Wow. Yeah. That so, is pretty incredible. Unfortunately, uh, the waste issue has taken on a life of its own, and it shouldn't have. Mm. Uh, Yucca Mountain, I've been there personally. I've had an opportunity to go through it. It would have been a completely safe repository for nuclear fuel uh, ad infinitum. Uh, But yet it's been blown out of proportion uh, by people who, frankly, who fear monger. And that's Mm. really unfortunate because the waste issue is not a technical issue. It's a perception issue. And uh, as a nation, we've got to get back to the science and we've got to get around this fear mongering that's uh, been associated with nuclear power. Uh, so but what, yeah, what, what, free, waste is not an issue. What needs to happen? And I mean, we're in that we just uh, today's voting day. Uh, I right. voted I voted today midterm elections. Uh, we're going to start seeing presidential bids. What needs to happen within the next two years in the Biden administration going into the next administration of whichever that may be? What's what's the call to action here? Yeah, the call to action is support the front end of the fuel cycle. Tremendous steps have been taken for the back end, the uh, the electric generators. Now we need to change the focus, move more toward the front end of the processing. So providing support for the miners, conversion and enrichment so they can get up and running. Who can do who who has the you know power? Is it can private can like Elon Musk, for example, just open up a plant and say, I'm going to start mining uranium and processing it? Absolutely. In the United States, you simply need a license from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Not easy to get, but oh. <laughs> anyone can go out and run through that process and do that. And, and you know, it's funny you mentioned uh, Elon Musk. Uh, here in Wyoming, where I'm calling in from today, uh, Bill Gates's company, TerraPower, is actually licensing a small modular reactor not very far from where I'm sitting. Okay. And the small so, so, so he reactor, realizes uh, the yeah. importance of it. Yeah, he's buying in in a very big way. And in fact, they've announced that in addition to that first one, they would like to build four more and use those to replace existing coal-fired power plants in Wyoming and Utah. So we've got some very big names now that are supportive of nuclear power. Elon Musk included is very supportive and Bill Gates and others. So we're seeing a lot of support uh, from private companies and publicly traded companies uh, share prices are starting to move up in these publicly traded companies as the interest grows. There's a lot more investment. So, so there's actually investments the right people way. can make into these companies as well, kind of just like a regular stock investment, it sounds like. That's pretty cool, too. So yeah, the public exactly. the public can get involved, even though they can't open up one of these plants, they can invest in companies. That's pretty cool. So uh, what what's the, the final bit of advice you can give the everyday person to get involved with helping spearhead this campaign to to green energy. Yeah, you bet. There's a lot of great information available on websites, uh, both trade organizations, government organizations, and also companies like mine, Your Energy. We've got a great website that tells about the technology we use at our mine sites. So I would encourage the public, go check those out. Go what's check your, what's out your website? Uh, www.ur-energy.com. 
would also encourage people to check out the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, the World Nuclear Association, uh, a couple of great websites there that people can learn about the technology, understand that better. Uh, and uh, that way, when they vote, they can vote in favor of policies that are pro-nuclear. So Perfect. yeah, being election day, I should call that out. You heard John Cash, ur-energy.com, and let's spearhead the USA Green Energy Nuclear Movement, people. Thanks for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it, and we'll see you in the next episode. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you learned something today, please support this podcast by subscribing to it, sharing it with your friends, and leaving a five-star review. You can learn more about me at jasonsherman.org, where you'll find information about my book, also called Strap on Your Boots, available on Amazon, as well as my course called Startup Essentials on Udemy or Skillshare. I'll see you at next week's episode.